Good evening. We welcome you to the Monroe Church of Christ and to our uh, live stream Bible study for this midweek uh, time period. It's on Thursday night this week, and for the foreseeable future, we will, we will be doing these on Thursday nights just due to some scheduling uh, difficulties that, uh, that we would have otherwise. It's possible that in the course of this study, by the time maybe toward the end of it, we'll be back doing this class in person. If so, we will continue to do this class in person. Uh, you will be, uh, be able to join wherever you are as well as we do that. We'll continue to live stream it, uh, and we'll just pick up and make the, the most of it. We're still kind of in flux uh, as far as determining what we're going to be doing with this, uh, this midweek period going forward in our Bible classes. There's a lot to, to consider. Obviously, there's the, um, the COVID situation, which we're feeling more and more comfortable about, especially in our congregation. And so we hope that we'll be able to <clears throat> excuse me, move forward and, and have classes. But to do that, we have to have a place for our kids to go while we have this class. That means we have to uh, find the teachers and, uh, and make sure our, our facilities are prepared to handle that. So hopefully in the coming weeks, we'll be back to Wednesday nights here at the building with everybody. But for right now, it'll be Thursday nights at 630 uh, as we uh, conduct this study. And this study is concerning how we got the Bible. This is going to be a little bit of a different, uh, a different study than what we've been doing. We've been in, uh, in the book of Romans in this time period for the last few months, and we've concluded that, and now we move forward into this topic, which is very different because we're not dealing with a text. We're not dealing with uh, really a, a theme with one writer, one author, or one, one book of the Bible. We're dealing with something a little more technical. It's a bit of a deep dive. It's going to be challenging, and it's going to require some really deep thinking about some things. And so the question you might ask is why? Why study this? Well, I think there's several reasons why. Number one, sometimes we look at the Bible as this book we have that is our gateway to understanding God and knowing His Son, and that's true. There's wonderful things in Scripture we learn from it. It's, it's in some cases, all we have to understanding this faith that we're a part of. But also, <clears throat> if we just look at the Bible as some book that we magically received and we don't consider how we got it, how it got to where we are, uh, then we're missing out on a little bit of understanding of God's providence in caring for his people today. If you think about God's people throughout history, it's easy to forget they didn't have the Bible. They had other ways that they connected with God and other ways that they knew God, other ways that God spoke to them. So how, how are we like them? You know, we talk about that a lot. But when we want to have the faith that, that Moses had or the faith that Abraham had or the faith that Paul had. Well, how did they have that faith if they didn't have this, the, the Bible as we have it? Another reason that we want to understand how we got the Bible is because there are those who criticize the Bible itself as, as being some kind of evidence that our faith is not legitimate or that it's based in things that are not factual. Uh, and those criticisms can often be met by really understanding, accepting, and examining the history of how the Bible came to be. And so we're going to look at the history, and we're going to look at the scholarly parts, and we're going to look at the, at the language of it. And, and figure that out. So we won't be dealing a lot with the, the text itself. We won't be dealing a lot with, with matters of faith per se. We're going to be looking at this from the standpoint of, of the technical side, how the Bible came to be, 
over the centuries, over the millennia, how it ended up in our hands or on our phones for us to study. And by doing that, I think our knowledge will be more well-rounded. I think our faith will actually grow deeper. Now, there'll be parts that will challenge your faith, but that's not what I'm intending to do. I'm not trying to break down anything you believe, trying to help you see it from all sides so you can believe it more deeply, defend it more clearly, and also withstand some of the challenges to your faith that will come by attacking the scripture itself and its um, authority or its accuracy or anything like that. So it is going to be a bit of a deeper dive, but we will begin in the text tonight and we'll look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. If you have your Bible, turn there and let's read what the text says. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Now, what does the Hebrew writer say that God has done throughout time? God has spoken to his people. That is a fact of the relationship of God and man, that God is always speaking in some form. There have been periods of time where God didn't do much talking, and there have been periods of time where he was quite talkative with his people. But the writer of Hebrews says that in the past, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in various forms and in many ways at many times. But presently, as the writer writes it, and even still applicable to us today, God spoke through Jesus. And that is whom was with him in the beginning. That is who was with him at the foundation of the world and, uh, and in whom he has uh, entrusted the future of the kingdom. And it's by him that we're saved. So even the Hebrew writer says that God has always had different ways of talking to people. And throughout our story, and our story and it goes all the way back to, well, to Genesis, when we see the beginnings of our story developing, even from the very beginning, God spoke different ways to people. Always, though, no matter who he was speaking to and who he was speaking through, always what he was speaking about was pointing them to Jesus. He was trying to get them to Jesus. And today, we also see God in Scripture speaking to us. But the purpose is to point to Jesus. Now think about the Great Commission. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, or has been given to you. Uh, and he, he says, he doesn't say all authority has been given to some books you're going to write after I'm gone. All authority has been given to Christ been given to Jesus, and he passes that on to us to go and tell his, his story and tell the gospel to, to those who will listen. Sometimes it's really easy for us to look at any part of this story and to deify it, in a sense, or to make an idol out of it. And the Bible is chief among those that we, we kind of struggle with that temptation. The Bible is the Word of God. It is, well, Jesus is the word of God, as the, as the apostle and the writer John describes it. But as far as God's revelation to us and, and the words that he, uh, the way in which we come to understand that, it's through scripture. But always, always remember this, the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. The Bible has no value to us if it's not pointing us to Jesus. But because it's what we have, it's very easy to set that in front of us and say, this is what we worship and this is what we follow and this is what we study. Uh, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to deify scripture and we don't want to make an idol out of the Bible. We want to understand it for what it is. 
And what it is is the inspired teachings of the Christian faith that point us to Jesus. And if we're going to understand that, we really need to understand where it came from and how we got it, because in the grand scheme, it's fairly young. It's a fairly young thing. Now, the bits and pieces of it, are some are very ancient, but in terms of what we hold in our hand, it's quite young. And we need to know that, and we need to be willing to accept that and to confront that and see what that means. So we see the Hebrew writer talking about the different ways that uh, God speaks to his people. He does so through Christ, and, and now we've, we would say he does so through the scriptures. And it's pointing us to Jesus. So that's what we're going to study, and that's why we're going to study it. <clears throat> Ancient writings um, were done in various mediums, okay? Um, a lot of ancient writing would have taken place on things like vellum or animal skins or forms of leather. Uh, we have almost none of that uh, still in existence today because it doesn't hold up well. It deteriorates, it's destroyed, it's lost, it's gone. Some writings took place on stone or on hard surfaces, clay tablets, things like that. Uh, we have quite a bit of that that is still in existence. You can go to certain parts of the world and find that. Uh, even on walls of buildings and, uh, and streets and cities, you can see that writings. The vast majority of that writing are household accounts. They are, um, you know, bills that someone owed, taxes that a king levied, the things that, you know, the, the, the commerce that was occurring. They were matters of record, and they were written in, in stone or on clay tablets or on some hard surface. And again, we can still see them, and we can confirm some things and learn about history, but but despite having so much of that, very little of the scripture that we have was written that way. Uh, some things were written on metal, metal surfaces. Copper uh, was one. With the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a, um, <clears throat> a, a copper scroll. It was hammered out copper, hammered out thin, and written on, and then rolled up. And when it came time to kind of examine these Dead Sea Scrolls and this discovery, they realized they were in trouble because copper doesn't really like to unroll without breaking, and so they had to cut it up into hundreds and hundreds of pieces and then piece it back together. It's really quite fascinating the way that the archaeologists went about trying to reconstruct this. But that's the problem we face, and as we introduce this idea and begin this journey of seeing how we got the Bible, we need to talk about the challenge of finding and putting together <clears throat> these pieces. Because if you were to discover a clay pot or some vessel somewhere, and uh, the, it contains the ancient writings or the ancient scripture or the manuscripts, and you were to open it up, it's very likely you'd find just thousands of pieces of something in the bottom. And you don't know what goes with what and how to put it together. I'll use this example. Let's imagine that you took every jigsaw puzzle in the state of Wisconsin, where we live. Okay, every jigsaw puzzle in the state of Wisconsin, and you open them up, and you remove between 1% and 60% of the pieces in each box. Then you take those boxes and you empty them all out in this room, in this auditorium. Dump them out. And then throw the boxes away. You don't get a picture to look at. You don't get a box to refer to. Now, figure out what's represented here. Put all the puzzles together and tell me what you have. That would be nearly impossible. It's not just a needle in a haystack. It's a needle in thousands of haystacks that we're looking for. 
And that's really the trouble with taking ancient writings and trying to put them together to form some kind of cohesive unit or story. Lots of pieces come and go, and they're brought in from other areas, and they're pieced together. And these people who have discovered these things, and the scholars are trying to put them together, and they don't even know what they're trying to put together yet. And so it takes time, and it takes effort, and it takes a lot of work to discover that and to make it happen. The journey of the Bible is a fascinating one. Because very oftentimes, ancient peoples carried on oral tradition. And we hear that a lot. When we think about oral tradition, I think we think mostly about storytelling, passing down generation to generation, the stories. Um, and, and that's really not an accurate description uh, because that, in our mind, is more like a game of telephone. That's more like a fishing story, right? Well, I heard so-and-so told so-and-so told so-and-so that they caught, it was this big, you know, and it was really, that, that's how we think of oral tradition. Very different in the ancient times. Oral tradition is taken very seriously. Uh, the ancient Celts would memorize, would, they would be told stories, and they had to repeat the stories back word for word for 12 years before they could become priests, druidic priests. Uh, the Hebrew uh, teachers and the Hebrew students, the Hebrew schools, would teach the stories and memorize the sounds and have to recreate the sounds. Because uh, even today, when you w were to see Semitic people, uh, Arabs, Hebrews, learning their religion, whether it be Islam or Judaism, uh, and you'll see them reciting and learning and reading these things back. Well, they're not really reading them because those languages have been lost. Uh, no one speaks these languages the way they're written. They're dead languages. And so what a lot of those students are doing is just memorizing sounds. They don't read it. They're memorizing the sounds uh, of those manuscripts and repeating those back. That's the way they, they taught, learned, and, and continue to pass on oral tradition. When you think about that, the problem that it presents, the challenge of discovering and piecing together the ancient words that were once written, it's no longer as simple as saying, well, Moses wrote you know, a few books and we found those and we know they're from him and we know what they say and we put them together and, and that's the first five books of the Bible and then so on and so forth through Joshua and the, the Psalms. And It's not that simple. That's not how it came to be. It's not so cut and dry. It's a far more fascinating and incredible journey. The Bible you hold in your hand or the Bible you have on your phone <clears throat> has been on a really remarkable journey. These are the stories of an ancient desert nomadic people that have found their way through this. And, and in the grand scheme of the world, a very small group of people, <clears throat> an ancient nomadic desert people took their stories and somehow they ended up in your hands thousands of years later. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's fascinating. And I think God's providence and his guidance has led that to be. But it really is amazing. And they did that through stories. They did that through telling and preserving and even writing down their stories. You look at the creation story. In ancient Mesopotamia, the creation story was that there were these two, and I'm paraphrasing it here, there were these two dragons, and they're, they're fighting, and they bite and eat and swallow one another, and then the gods have a, a war, and that's how we get pandas, okay? Well, if you read Genesis chapter 1, and if you know that ancient Mesopotamian story, you will see the structure of the description of creation following the pattern, answering point for point that story from Mesopotamia and saying, no, this is how it really happened. 
Now, you wouldn't know that if you didn't know the other story, the older creation story, chronologically. We only know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? But if you knew the ancient story, you would see the pattern and the way that story is told with a specific purpose. That's the context in which the story was told, the context in which the writing occurred. Um, stories are important to a culture. They're important to a people. Uh, the stories of where you come from, the stories of the, the nation of your, of your birth or origin, uh, the stories of any culture of people are, are incredibly important. When we begin to forget those stories, we forget who we are and we lose what we are. We, we struggle with that now in the United States, in America, because we have a, a rich history, uh, the birth of our nation and, and so on and so forth. But when in school today, when you learn about someone like Thomas Jefferson, what do you learn? Do you learn about his um, influences from the Scottish Enlightenment? Do you learn about uh, the things he wrote and the, the way he crafted our declaration and helped to craft our constitution and, uh, and his presidency? No, you, you learn more about mistreated slaves and had children out of wedlock and that sort of thing. Same with George Washington. Uh, same with any of the, the founding uh, now as we study it, that we find them problematic. And it's tragic because in the midst of that, we're losing our story and we're losing a sense of who we are. So stories are very important. And the stories were told by these ancient people and they were written down and they were shared and, and eventually they were collected together and, and, and we have them. And the the, those who told those stories and wrote those stories uh, evidently had no problem using other sources. Now, that might be troublesome for you to think of, because as we read the Bible, this is the definitive, complete, inspired Word of God. Now, I'm not going to attack any of that statement. I believe it is. But we have to be willing to acknowledge there are other sources that are being cited even within the writings themselves. Uh, and, and, and you can read it because they even cite sources, the writers of, of, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, of books we don't have. We don't even know what they are. They, they cite these, uh, and I'll just give you a list of some outside sources uh, that are not found in our Bible that are cited by Bible writers. In Exodus chapter 24, uh, the book of the covenant is mentioned. It says that, that he took the book of the covenant and he read it to the people. Well, what's the book of the covenant? We don't know. We don't have that. Uh, it's something else. We just don't know what it is and we don't have it. Numbers 21, it's mentioned the book of the wars of the Lord. Joshua chapter 10 and 2 Samuel 1, uh, the book of Jasser. The book of the manner of the kingdom is another one that's mentioned. <clears throat> book of statutes. The book of Samuel the seer. Samuel wrote a book. He gave it to Nathan. We don't have it. We don't know. Um, uh, the book of Nathan itself is actually mentioned in 2 Chronicles. We don't have that. The Acts of Solomon, Shemaiah uh, the prophet, uh, the various books of Edo. There is a prophet named Edo. He wrote several different books. We don't have them. We don't, we don't know. The visions of Edo the seer, the book of Jehu, the sayings of the seer. Now, we do have that one. We do know that one. We just, it's not in our Bible. Uh, the book of Enoch, Gad the seer, the epistle to Corinth. Oh, wait, now we have that one, right? We have, we have First and Second Corinthians. Yes, we have two of the four. In the Corinthian letters, Paul refers to other letters he wrote. We think four of them. We only have two of them. In Ephesians, it's referenced in the text that there was another letter written to the Ephesians by Paul. 
the letter from the church in Laodicea to the Colossians. There are all these outside sources that are cited in Scripture that we don't have in Scripture. In the course of telling the story, the people telling it and the people writing it use the stories that existed in the time to share and build on the story. But we don't have all of it. We have what's been collected. We have what's been worked and what's been put together. Um, one verse that most people will, will recognize is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. And it's there, and I won't, I won't read it because we're going we're gonna to try to make the most of our time here. But uh, in, in that verse, you can look it up, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, it says, it references a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. There's a prophecy uh, about Jesus that he's going to be called a Nazarene, right? A Nazarene, um, we all know that. Can you remember the prophecy where it says that Jesus would be a Nazarene? No, you can't because it's not there. You remember the verse in Matthew chapter 2 that says Jesus was prophesied that he would be a Nazarene, but go back and search the Old Testament. You won't find any prophecy that we have that says Jesus would be a Nazarene. The gospel writer cited a prophecy that was apparently known and relevant that didn't make it, didn't survive to our time. We don't have the words of the prophet that said Jesus would be a Nazarene, but we do have a reference to that prophecy, and we accept it and believe it. Other books we don't have, the Acts of Isaiah, the Epistle of Jude. In verse 3 of, of the book of Jude, he references that he wrote them another letter. We have books, we have letters, we have things that uh, are mentioned all throughout Scripture that we don't have, that we haven't discovered. We might yet discover them, but we don't know where they are, and we don't know what all they said. We just have references to them. And you think about this desert people, this nomadic people, this ancient people that are trying to keep their story alive, and they're telling their story, and they begin writing about their story. And over time, they are oppressed, they are taken over, they're held in captivity, they're expelled from their land, and they come back together and they gather together with their people and they say, we've got to reclaim our story. We've got to rediscover our story. And so they gather together all of these pieces, all of these ancient writings, all of these, these oral traditions, and they try to piece together their story because they need to have them in order to be a people. Without their story, they no longer exist. And so as they've been scattered and brought back together, they have to rediscover their story. And they do that by gathering together all of these things we've just talked about and trying to put them into some sort of story. And they are a people who were trying to find their story, to get it together uh, and, 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 and to make sense of it. Uh, tradition gives us some information about the writers of these books, these stories, and these letters. The Bible itself, the text itself, does not, for the most part. Um, you say, well, you know, look at the New Testament. We see Paul claiming authorship in many of his letters. Right, fair enough. Uh, that's fine. Uh, and then you, uh, but, but most of the books of the Bible don't have that feature. Uh, we don't know who wrote them. We have some tradition and, and some thoughts about who wrote them uh, that have kind of seeped in and become factual, but, but we really don't know for sure, on, on some of those. Um, I want to address one thing about Scripture, about its inspiration. It's very easy to get off course here and to start doubting the inspiration of Scripture. We believe, because Scripture tells us 
that it's inspired. But we have to accept the fact there are things that are referenced that we don't have, so what about those? Were they inspired? And what do we make of how the Bible was written? Did God dictate uh, all of these facts to the writers? Did, was he whispering in their ear through the Holy Spirit and saying, write this, write this, write this? I don't believe so. I do not believe that the Bible was produced by dictation of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration, yes. Dictation, there's some problems with that view. Uh, chief among them is the fact that when you read a letter written by Paul, it sounds like a letter written by Paul. Um, Paul writes the book of Galatians. That was, we think, his first letter. That's best we can tell. That may be the earliest letter we have of Paul. And he is relentless and aggressive and bold and sometimes mean to, to the, the people he's writing. He's frustrated. Uh, and he talks about the people who are, who are really pressuring and pushing for circumcision as a, um, a, a, as a precursor or prerequisite for being a Christian, saying they all must be circumcised like Jews are circumcised. He, he says to those people who are, who are binding the right of circumcision on Christians, uh, he hopes that the knife would slip and they would castrate themselves. Paul says that. He talks about their good works. And he says it's just a pile of, and he uses a word that in the Greek language is kind of a vulgar term. It's not a nice term that, like we would use. Later writings from Paul, later in his life, he's a lot more mellow. We can see his personality. We can see an aging apostle shift in his approach to correction and rebuke and sharing the gospel. And it all sounds different than what Peter writes. The gospel writers all sound different. What about David? Do you think, did, did God tell him to write things like in the Psalms, like, oh God, where are you? Why aren't you listening to me? No, God allowed David to write about what was on his heart. There are countless examples we could use to discuss the dictation idea. I simply don't see that that's a viable explanation of what inspiration is. I believe that the personalities and the desires and the, the intention of the authors come through. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired their writing in that it blessed their writing with the truth and with the knowledge and with the, uh, the importance that it carries to get to us today, to be preserved and I believe, I believe that what the Bible says is true, but we must acknowledge how we got it. We don't have everything that's even referenced in Scripture itself. And it's important. And I, I don't think it is meant to attack faith or destroy faith. I think it builds faith to see how much had to happen right in order for us to hold a Bible in our hand today. I think that picture will become more and more clear to you as time goes on through this series and through these lessons that it's pretty, pretty remarkable. You can't deny the power, presence, and inspiration of God in getting it to that point. So, uh, so as I was saying, the, the authorship of some of these books is, is in dispute, but we've, we really only have it mentioned within the scripture of very few of them. The rest of them, we have assigned authorship based on tradition. What about the five books of Moses? you might say, because we, we know that the five books, the five first books of the Bible are written by Moses, right? You've all heard that. You've all been taught that. There's some problems with that. 
when we say the five books of Moses, we mean the five books that concern the time of Moses, uh, that time in the history of the people, or written in the time of Moses. But the authorship of Moses itself is a bit challenging to, to prove. There's certainly things there that seem to be written by Moses, but there's certainly some other problems with it too. These are books about Moses. That doesn't mean, and neither does the scripture say, that he wrote them. Uh, we've kind of agreed upon it, but that doesn't mean there's not still issues with it. If you look through some of those books, you'll see that there are stories that are told more than once. Sometimes things happen out of order. Numbers of things change. It'll say there are, there are two, two of this thing, and then it'll say there are 14 of this thing. In one story, it refers to um, uh, the... Uh, the Midianites doing something, and in another one, it refers to a different nation doing something. And it's the same story told twice, but the facts are different. The facts have changed. We see the story of Moses striking the rock for water at, at Merida twice. Uh, and we'll get to the doublets, that they're called doublets later. And we see, we see um, a list of Edomite kings that's written um, in Genesis chapter 36. There are kings listed in that list who we know from history came after Moses died. How did they get in there if Moses wrote all of this? We see the death of Moses itself described. If, if it's dictation and, you know, and he's telling him what to write and he's telling him, and then Moses went up to the mountain, and, I'd put the pencil down if that's what I heard. Uh, Moses refer, if Moses wrote it all himself, then we're going to have to deal with the fact that he referred to himself as the most humble man who ever lived. That's, that's an odd thing for the most humble man in the world to say. Um, there's some evidence here. There's some things here. Um, we see a story about Moses going into the tabernacle before the tabernacle was built, because then later on in the story, then they build the tabernacle. How does that happen? How did these things happen? Well, we have to deal with that. We have to deal with the idea of authorship, particularly Moses' authorship. Um, there are passages that refer to Moses in the third person. Um, we, we, uh, we see a, a verse where it says, these are the things that Moses spoke uh, to the people across the Jordan. Moses never crossed the Jordan. That's someone writing about something Moses said when they were back over there. He's writing it on the other side of the Jordan and saying, this is what Moses said when we were back over there. That's clear evidence that someone else has had a hand in writing this. We've just agreed that it's Moses. And it's very likely that Moses' writings were the source material. But most scholars now agree that these writings, these first five books have been taken. They have been, they've evolved, they've been reworked, they've been added to, and they've been changed from what originally might have been written as the base source material by Moses. Now, I'm, I'm telling you all this and talking about this really to address a concept. First, we have to address the idea of inspiration, dictation versus inspiration, uh, that there's some problems with taking a hard line that God used dictation as the means of producing these writings. Then we have to accept that the stories told and the stories gathered together and the stories written did not come into a completed form and just stay that way. Other people took those stories, worked them piece them together from other places to make a more complete story. And the books of Moses are a prime example of that because scholars have done a lot of stuff, both Jewish and secular scholars have done a lot of study on, on what that means and how that might be possible. 
it's very likely that Moses did write the basis of those first five books, but others probably added to it. Now, does that diminish the authority? Does that diminish the inspiration? Does that diminish the importance of it? No, absolutely not. It doesn't. They're telling our story. And God works through community to tell the story. To continue, we, we ourselves are continuing to write the story of God's people. And we have this collection of writings in front of us that tell of that story and build that story. And then we live out that story and we're adding to it as we live. And it doesn't have to be that this Bible is set and locked and that's all we ever have. We ourselves are a part of it and we're building upon it. But we'll get to why we have the Bible we have later on. That's weeks ahead. Um, Beginning in the 1500s, studies were conducted with regard to the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, as to its authorship. And the first thing they did is they took uh, all of those, what I said were doublets, where we have stories of, uh, of the, something happening twice. Okay? It's told in one spot and it's retold again in another spot. Some examples. Well, we have creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 both tell a version of the creation story with different emphasis. Okay? Uh, Abraham and his covenant with God is told twice. The naming of Isaac. Twice Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister rather than his wife. Uh, we, I mentioned the water from the rock in Meribah. Um, and, and we feel sometimes the need to look at these, and, and there's the same story told twice, but some things are different, and we want to jump and say, well, there's no contradiction in the Bible. That's not there. And we spend more time trying to prove that this doesn't have some sort of problem with it rather than just accepting that, hey, God worked through his providence to bring people together to put these stories together, and some of it's a little bit odd, and sometimes there are issues with it, but we believe that God is working to bring us the story, and we accept that. And I think, I think our defense of Scripture is stronger when we're willing to accept that there's some things in there that are a little hard to deal with, but they're ancient writings. They're thousands of years old, and they've been pieced together by a nomadic desert people so that we can hold them today. Now, never in the history of the world have ancient writings been so uh, wonderfully preserved that we can hold them today and have a pretty strong um, indication that they're accurate. But in order to accept the fact that they're accurate, we have to accept the process by which they came to be. So, Some scholars took a look at these doublets. They took a look at these dual stories. And they decided what we'll do is we'll separate them out. They took all of them and they put one set of them over here. And they put one set of them over here. And they noticed something really fascinating. All of the doublets over here, this set, all use a specific word to refer to God, Yahweh. And all of the doublets over here, when they refer to God, refer to him as Elohim, okay? So it begins to build this picture that there's strong evidence to suggest that one writer wrote these stories using the word Yahweh, and one writer used, wrote these stories using the word Elohim to refer to God. We have many different words that are used to refer to God in Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, we have words like Adonai, El Shaddai, Yahweh, and Elohim, uh, we, we've heard the word Jehovah, Jehovah, as, and that's not really God's name. Um, Jehovah is kind of a made-up name of, of two words put together. 
if you take the consonants of the word Yahweh, and Yahweh, if you look at it, it's just four consonants. And if you take the consonants of Yahweh and you place in between it the vowels from, uh, from Adonai, then what you're left with is a word Jehovah, which has always been used to refer to God. Uh, we, not as much uh, in more recent translations of Scripture. If you're reading through the Bible and you come across the word Lord written in all capital letters, that is the translator's indication that you're dealing with the word Yahweh. Okay? Yahweh is uh, uh, called the, the te- tetragrammaton. The tetragrammaton is the letters that make up what we call Yahweh. We really don't know how to pronounce it even. We've just sort of settled on Yahweh. So these scholars say, well, all of these versions of the doublets have Yahweh and all of these versions have El Shaddai. So they've, just, they've determined that it's very likely we have two sources right here for these stories that we can categorize by the use of Yahweh or El- uh, uh, Elohim. And they assigned it that this, they named the authors with those letters. So this is the J author, J for Yahweh. Okay, hang on. J for Yahweh. There is no J in Hebrew. It's a, it's that sound, right? Okay. Um, it's like a hairball. Uh, there's no real J, not a J sound. It's, it's a different sound. But we use J uh, like Yeshua, Jesus, okay? Jesus or Joshua or, uh, or any of those. And, and the word Jehovah, we pronounce it Jehovah, but that first letter there is from Yahweh. <laughs> Yahweh, okay? So um, J and then E for Elohim. So we have the J author and we have the E author. And again, linguistically, we have four consonants, and we call it Yahweh. We don't really know what the pronunciation should be, but it starts with what we would call a J, but that is just a sound in Hebrew. And the word Jehovah was formed by combining a couple of different versions of the name of God. And in your translation today, you will just see um, the Tetragrammaton explained with all capital Lord. Lord in all caps. That just means Yahweh. So throughout scripture, we see God referred to with different names. And if you were to separate that out, you'll find some consistency between the stories that these repeated stories were probably written by two different authors, the J author and the E author. And that makes up two of the four authors that we've determined were a part of the first five books. Yes, there were two more because we've also discovered the priestly writers, the P author. Mostly they're found in the books of law, like Leviticus. Okay, these seem to be written by priestly writers who use yet another name for God. And then Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is kind of its own thing. Okay, so let's recap here. We took the first five books, we separated out the stories that were repeated. Half of them had used Yahweh, the J author, or I'm sorry, not necessarily half of them, but half of them used the J author, half of them used the E, uh, the E author or Elohim. And then still we had some that used parts of of those books that used a different name for God, one that would have been common amongst the priests. So we believe that was a priestly author or the P author. And then Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is in its own category. We think Deuteronomy itself was written by a, a fourth author and that he probably wrote the subsequent books of history of the Jewish people. He is referred to as the Deuteronomist. So you have J, you have E, you have P, which is mostly Leviticus, and then you have the Deuteronomist. How are you feeling? (laughs) This is deep stuff. This is hard stuff. 
Why am I telling you all this? Because it's very easy to just say, well, Moses wrote the first five books. Sure. But the facts and the history and the linguistics and really the science of the scriptures are not that cut and dry. And if we just say, well, Moses wrote it, God told him what to wrote, we run into all kinds of problems trying to defend that. And it probably weakens our position on the authority and inspiration of Scripture. If we're willing to understand the history and know how we got here, and really I'm just trying to help you understand some concepts. Authorship is not a cut and dry easy thing to figure out. Source materials and the, the one source versus many sources of the final product that we have in our Bible, not super cut and dry. It's not as simple as Moses wrote this down and we know it's him and it never changed one bit and we got it in our Bible today. It's just not that simple. We have to be willing to say it's not that simple and that doesn't change the fact that we believe it and that it is inspired and that God's providence brought it to be. It only strengthens our faith when we look at it and say, look at all that had to happen to get it to us. Look at what it had to go through. In the 1700s, three separate sets of scholars worked on this very issue, independently of each other, not knowing that the other one was looking for the same thing, and they all came to the same conclusion about the four potential authors of the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's a J, and there's an E, and there's a P, and there's the Deuteronomist. We don't really... We're not settled on who he is. We have some guesses as to who he might be. We'll talk about that later, too. It's believed that all these sources used Moses' writings and built upon it and brought it together and wove together these different sources to tell the story. Now, we have a lot more to trace through and to walk through in, in the, these lessons that we're going to do in the subsequent weeks. And I hope I haven't scared you off yet. It is a deep, deep dive. It is very technical, and we're looking at history and linguistics. And, you know, I have to rely on many other people who've done these studies, and I have to kind of dig through it myself and, and learn a little bit along the way that I can share it with you. But we're going to learn together, and we're going to examine this together. And why are we going to do that? Because so many people, Christians, are, are confronted with issues of the authority of Scripture and the trustworthiness of Scripture itself, and their faith is damaged because they've been told their whole life that it's super simple and cut and dry, that uh, God told someone what to write, they wrote it, it was perfectly preserved, locked in, never changed, and here we have it. Your faith will crumble when you're confronted with the facts because it's not that simple. There will be those who will attack the authority and accuracy of Scripture on that basis. Will you be strong enough to withstand it? Will you be strong enough to respond are we strong enough and do we trust God enough to admit, hey, there are parts of this that aren't as simple as we think. Peter probably wrote the Gospel of Mark, probably dictated it to Mark. That's what we believe. If you look at Mark, and, and Mark comes in and out of the book of Acts. Mark came from a wealthy family, and uh, they had homes in North Africa as well as uh, Jerusalem. Uh, and other places, they own property. And he ends up with Peter at a certain point, and we believe that Peter dictated a gospel account to him. When you read Mark, look at what happens to Peter. He gets a pretty favorable uh, treatment in, those, in that gospel. 
the story when, when the tomb is empty and, and John and Peter are running to go see if the tomb is empty. It says John's running out there and, and Peter buzzes right past him and gets there first, right? Oh, you don't think Peter took a little liberty uh, or, or made sure to point out, I, I was faster. Look at how Jesus is described in the Gospel of Mark compared to the other Gospels. He's described as frustrated, angry, um, disappointed, uh, and, and all these kind of really big and, and sometimes negative emotions. Well, Peter was frustrated. He was challenged and angry and, and disappointed. He was projecting some of those things onto Jesus as he told the story. That makes sense. But we don't talk about that because it's got to be Mark and it's got to be this. I mean, Luke himself, when he wrote his gospel and when he wrote the book of Acts, the sequel, uh, he says, you know, everybody's got their account out there and there's all these different gospel stories floating around. I tried to take all of them and put them together and give a definitive biography of Jesus Christ and of the story of the early church. He admits it right there. I use source material. I worked from existing documents and existing stories to grow the story to build upon the story. Countless examples can make the same point here. And we've talked about Moses, and we've talked about some of the Gospels and so on, but the point is this. We are about to take the first step into a journey that is deep and technical and heavy and difficult. I am not trying to destroy your faith in the authority and inspiration of God's Word. I'm trying to build your faith in the authority and inspiration of God's Word. That might mean challenging some things we think we know about God's Word but all in, service to the fact, to, all in service to the idea of understanding it deeper, defending it more readily and more completely, and having a faith that is not shaken by the fact that it's not simple. My faith can't be shaken by the fact that multiple authors might have contributed to the final product. That's okay with me. God made it happen. I trust God. He wrote a story. He built a story. Others built on that story and I'm writing a story too. I'm writing a story by carrying on this faith. That's what we're gonna try to do. So hang with me, uh, don't run away. Next week, we're gonna keep going, building, and really these first couple of weeks are all about introducing some concepts about what it means that the Bible is inspired, what authorship really means, and the fact that these stories had to come from a desert people thousands of years ago to 2021, and that took some work, and it took some confusion, and it took people reworking things, but we got it, and we believe it, and we think, and we know that it says what it says, and we'll trust it, and I hope you'll stick with me on this journey, because it's going to be fun. It's a lot of hard work, but it's going to be fun, so we'll see you next week, and we will continue on this journey of how we got the Bible. And uh, Sunday morning, we'll be here yet again for our Bible study as we take a look, continuing at the Gospel of John, and then into our worship hour at 11 o'clock. And we look forward to seeing you there at that time, uh, right here, wherever you're watching us from.